to start seeing some changes happening on the hill. Uh, we've got somebody coming to remind, or excuse me, to remove, to remove about seven trees up there with the tape around them. And then we've got an excavator coming in that's going to remove the stumps, and we're going to make uh, parking up on the hill. So I'm very thankful for that. And uh, so praise the Lord for um, his provision for continued improvements on the property. And I'm praying that we need uh, room for parking. So as we start Genesis 18 this morning, I want to remind you where we came from. And some of you that were with us in Genesis 16 and 17, you're going to go, why are we talking about this again? It's like, uh, it's like teenagers when you start to have the talk with them and they're like, let's not talk about this. Except it's not about that. It's actually about um, circumcision. See if you can grab my slides for me there. We'll start in uh, Genesis in chapter 18 today. But I'm going to give you a reminder where we were last week. Because in chapter 17, I kind of went through quickly. But what I want to remind you of is in Genesis 16, Abram does a, a major catastrophe of a decision. Abram's just old enough in the faith where he knows what God has promised to him. He knows what God has done. And yet uh, he's like a teenager. He's got just enough responsibility to make adult consequences. And so here we have Abram who has been promised by God, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you descendants, as many as the dust on the ground, as many as the uh, uh, stars in the sky, and yet he's in his 80s and then 90s, and then he's 100, and he's not had a child yet. So when he gets up there in age, way past what we would call child-rearing time in your life, he's uh, not only past retirement, but he's at an age where most people are making plans to be put six feet under. And at that point, his wife comes to him and says, hey, I've never been able to give you, give you a child. Uh, so why don't you take my servant that I received from Egypt, and why don't you take her physically, and then she'll bear a child on my knees, and then we'll call that good. We'll call that our kid. And, and so this wasn't like a Jerry Springer type thing. This was pretty common in their days. It was like, uh, you know, just somebody else is being a surrogate parent for you. And, and so uh, they agreed to it. He uh, did as she said, and they had a child. And then God comes to him in Genesis 17 and says, walk uprightly before me. He says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, uh, implying that he's not been blameless up to this point. But what we find out is that while he had done something to help God's will be fulfilled in his life, God doesn't just accept things because we do them for him. Uh, he wants us to do his will, his way. And so God reminds Abram of the promise that he's made him. In Genesis 17, he says, walk before me and be blameless. And then he says these things. He reminds them of the covenant he's made with them. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you, verse 2. In verse 2 and 6, he says, I will multiply you exceedingly. Then he says, I will call you Abraham instead of Abram, which at a glance seems like who stinking cares what he calls him. This is just a nickname. But Abram meant exalted father. And up to this point, he's had no children except for one, and that was a work of the flesh. That was something that God didn't approve of because it was an extramarital relationship. 
And I love this, by the way, because I look at the people in the Bible and I go, I can relate to these folks. Uh, the Bible's honest about their mistakes, and yet God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we see in verse 5, he says, I will call you Abraham, inserting that fifth letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet. And we said that the, the fifth letter and, and the number five in the Bible signifies grace. So he's going to insert grace into Abraham's name, and now he's going to be called father of nations. And I love this because they had no children until they were over 90 years old. To be called father at all was something that seemed hypocritical to Abraham. Then he says in verse 7, I will establish my perpetual covenant with your descendants. In other words, this covenant, this agreement I'm making with you is an eternal agreement. It doesn't stop when you die. It's a perpetual covenant. It just keeps going. So it's passed on through the generations of Abraham. He says, I will give the land I promised to your descendants, verse 8. And then I will call Sarai, your wife, which by the way, we talked about this last week, her name actually meant contentious. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want a contentious wife. I don't want somebody that has cutting things to say to me. And yet what we find out is the father of the faith had a wife who had cutting, now no doubt, many, much of her cutting uh, speech towards him might be due to the fact that she's been barren her entire life. She's always wanted children and not been able to have what her heart desires I don't know about you, but stuff like that makes me bitter. It, it stays with you. It causes you to be a little bit irritable. And so he says, I'm going to call her Sarah instead, which means princess. No longer contentious, no longer, but princess. I think of something elegant, stately, if you will, maybe even with a British accent. It's much more sophisticated, right? And so Sarah instead and give you a son through her. Now Sarah's 90 years old. <laughs> I'm going to give you a son through her. But here's what the thing is. Like God does and he delights to do things that seem to us absolutely impossible. No doubt she had already gone through menopause. She had already had the 1,000 degrees to negative 20 she had already had the, hey, can you kick the heat on? Hey, can you open all the windows? Like that was, she was past that. They were laughing about it now. And at this point, God says, I'm going to give you a son through this woman who is past the age of childbearing. And so notice my slide there. I made a point to make sure you see, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And I'm just going to throw another one in there. I will. Who's saying that? God is saying, I will. God had already told Abram, I will. And then Abram goes, how about I help you? No, no, no. I will. And I'm going to do it correctly. And so he says all these I wills, and Abram is getting ready to respond to him. He, God's told him, the sign of the covenant between me and you is that you're going to be circumcised. Whoa, wait a minute. Where did that come from? Why, why do we need to talk about that? Well, circumcision in our day is kind of a medical thing. It's for cleanliness. It's for purity. It's for, uh, 
it's an outward thing we do to our male children because it's medically, it makes sense. It's healthy. And, and we do everything that's healthy, don't we? Um, but, but then there's another reason that we circumcise, and that is um, there's sensitivity. There's the removal of the outward flesh. But the reality is it was never about the male uh, reproductive organ. It was always to show a physical thing that would reveal a spiritual truth. And so why is he talking about circumcision? Well, two reasons, purity and sensitivity. Uh, The physical thing we won't talk about because you already have too much in your mind. You're like, I don't even want to talk about this. But modern medicine has shown us that it's an easier way to keep males clean and avoid infection in that area and other medical problems. But he's talking about spiritual circumcision. We'll see that in the book of Romans. He he wants them to be spiritually clean, clean, not just clean on the outside, not just looking like you got it all together, not just doing all the right things and saying all the right things and going all the right places, but actually have a heart that's clean towards God. The, The peace that only God can see, you've heard people say this, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, that's the problem. He knows your heart, not what you portray about your heart, not your best foot forward. And so number two, uh, sensitivity. A life of God's, the life of God's people is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Physical circumcision is a physical sign of what God would do to a person spiritually who was willing to die to himself and live his life for God instead. And I want to take you real quickly to Romans and chapter 2, where Paul writes way better about this than I ever could. Paul is a Jew by birth, and he would even say that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And they were actually called the circumcision. I don't know about you guys. I don't want that as my nickname. I don't want to be called that. I don't want to, it's just, it's, it's icky. Anyway, Romans chapter 2 and verse 25 says this. It says, circumcision indeed is profitable if you keep the whole law. See, they were doing an outward thing that was a requirement in God's law to be righteous. But if you're a breaker of the law, then being circumcised really doesn't get you anything. If you're going to fulfill the law, that's fine. That's how you want to be righteous in the sight of God. You have to fulfill every single tiny detail, every one. Not just 90%. It's not like school. I got a B plus. I got 90. No. It's either all or none. It's black or white. The law was always meant to be a tutor that would lead us to the fact that we need saved. We need a savior. And so for those that trusted in their circumcision, or uh, he says, um, if, if you break the law, then your circumcision may as well be uncircumcision. Verse 26, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, won't his righteous acts be counted as circumcision? Because it's not about the outward, it's about the inward. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and your circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
The idea is outwardly only. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So it's, think about this. I've always wondered this, and I finally think I understand it, but they always called themselves the circumcision because no one knew that they were. I mean, unless they were walking around awkwardly naked in public, no one would know. And so the idea is, why is the outward sign of the covenant something that no one can see? Wouldn't you want something that everybody could see? No, because it was always supposed to be an outward sign between you and who? You and God. Only God would know that you had done that thing and your spouse, obviously. But the idea is it's an intimate understanding. I am set apart for God. I have been purified for God's purpose. And and I alone know. I alone have been made sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that he can use me. I'm sensitive to what he has to show me sensitive to what he has for my life. And so in Romans chapter four, I love this. It's, it's an outward sign of a heart that's sensitive to God, but at the same time, it's not what saved Abraham. Abraham wasn't circumcised until the end of his life. And in the meantime, we've, up till now, we've been reading about all this. It wasn't until the end of chapter 17, where he's 90 to 100 years old, that's when he circumcised. So it was never about what he did. It was about who his God is. And so Romans 4 says, what then shall we say that Abraham of our father has been found according to the flesh, or excuse me, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So if you go to work and you do your job, your, your boss isn't paying you because he's giving you something you don't deserve. He, you deserve to be paid. You worked. And yet God, when he saves us, when we believe him and do nothing, and he says, I've saved you because you've believed in the work of my son, He's giving you salvation, not because of something you've done, but because of grace. It's, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. He, it's a free gift of God, lest we would boast about it. Hey, look what I did. And so God says, I'm going to do it all. I will. So when Abraham circumcises himself and his male sons and his servants, that gets a little weird, and, and then even Ishmael, he, he's do, it's a response to God's favor in his life. It's not because he has to do it to be righteous. It's because God, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Sounds great. If I got to do it, he could have very easily said, hey, I'm 90 years old. I don't need to go through that. At eight days old, the baby might not know, but I'm 90. I'm 100 years old. What does it matter? But I also want you to notice in verse 23 through 26 of Genesis 17, notice what it says there. God told him he was going to do all this. God told him what he needed to do. 
So Abraham took his son and all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. Abraham took his sons and his servants with him. He didn't say, hey, you guys need to go worship God. You guys need to go obey God. He said, let's all go obey God. He took his household with him. He took his servants with him. He he saw the faithfulness of God. He wanted them to experience the faithfulness of God. So they all obeyed together. And and I was listening to somebody else teach this, and I was really convicted. What what, uh, this pastor said, John Corson, he said, Notice that he didn't, he didn't tell, because what they're doing when they go get a circumcision, they're, they're worshiping. This is their act of worship. So he's saying, I, I don't tell my kids to go pray. I pray with them. I don't tell my kids to have devotions. I have devotions with them. I don't tell them they need to go to church. I go to church with them. And it's a spiritual act of worship, but it's saying, hey, I need Jesus too to those who are younger than you. Because many people are like, I, I've, been, I've had a relationship with God my whole life and my kids don't want one. Well, they've never seen it exemplified. So if you're confused and you're wondering, why aren't my children wanting to do the things that the Lord's called them to do? Start doing them yourself and your kids will naturally love what you love. Some of you absolutely love softball. Some of you absolutely love music. Some of you absolutely love building things, and because of that, naturally, your kids want to do it. You do not have to convince your kids to do things that you are passionate about. They love to do them, especially at the younger ages. You will have a hard time convincing them to do something that they're not absolutely sure that you're sold on. And so, all that to say, finally, chapter 18. Genesis 18, so then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. Now notice what it says here. The Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees, but at that point he hadn't seen the Lord yet. The Lord appeared to him, and and for some reason he knows he's there, and he looks up. He lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, Three men were standing by him when he saw them, and he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared And he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Now, if you know anything about uh, Middle Eastern culture, uh, if people come to your home unannounced, that's normal. Here, it's kind of offensive if people do it. Like, we just show up and be like, hey, hungry. What you got? (laughs) 
Let's raid the cabinets. Now, there's some of you that I'll do that too, and you need it. And there's some of you that I'm like, absolutely not. We'll give a three weeks notice. We might have to reschedule. But there are some people you can show up to their house and they're just ready. They're like, come on in. You know, but Abraham's doing what Middle Easterners do. If you show up at their tent, they're not going to act like they're put off, although they are. They will put together food. But I want you to notice, God appeared to Abraham, and immediately Abraham sees this manifestation of God. For some reason, it's three men. But when he sees them, he immediately humbles himself, and he starts taking the form of a servant and says, I want to do these things for you. Notice the things that he wants to do for the Lord. Let me get some water. They're in the desert. They're probably thirsty. Notice it's the heat of the day. He says, let me wash your feet. Let me get you some bread. Let me kill the fattened calf. These are people he's never met before. They just show up, and Abraham gets to work. And then when he's all done, by the way, this is a long process. You don't just kill a calf, throw it in the microwave, and go. You have to, like, there's, like, the cleaning process. Then there's the butchering process. There's the draining of the blood because there's, you know, they're, they're kosher. And then there's the cooking of the meat. And then you wait. And they're making bread. I've made some bread. It's not a five-second process. After that's all done, he brings it to them, sets it before them, and notice his position. He's humbled himself when he met them. Once he feeds them a meal, where is he, what's he doing? He's standing next to them. Because servants stand at the table until they're, whoever they're serving is done eating. They're, they're like a waitress. They're just ready. You need some extra water. Do you, do, are you, you got enough food? And in Middle Eastern culture, by the way, they let you eat until you can't move. If you stop asking for food, at that point, they'll still go, you want some more? You want some more? They'll just keep bringing it. That's how they roll. And so the idea is that you would leave blessed and fattened yourself. In, in certain cultures, by the way, when you have a pork belly, you got the whole thing going on, that, that means that you're, you're doing well. It's not that you're overweight. It means that you're well-fed. You're taken care of. You're satiated. Now, I think we take it a little extra. <laughs> and I'm guilty. But all I'm saying is that Abraham received these men as if they were the Lord. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, actually said that we are to entertain strangers because many in the Old Testament and the New entertained strangers and then later realized they were entertaining literal angels. And even on the road to Damascus, uh, there was the disciples that were walking after Jesus was crucified and they received this man. They were talking to him about Jesus and then they were like, hey, don't keep going. Why don't you stay and eat with us? And then after they got done preparing the meal, he broke the bread and gave thanks for it. They realized they, they weren't just, it wasn't just angels. They had actually prepared a meal and they were eating with Jesus. And so I love this because notice what it says in verse one. As he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, he was in the middle of the heat of his day. You guys know what I mean when I'm saying the heat of the day? Maybe for you it's different, but the day starts and I'm like, Hey, it's the morning, a new day, God's good. 
And then little by little, things get dropped on me. And little by little, there's another thing that's stressing me out. And I can just feel the stress level just slowly raise all day long, one needle at a time. Before you know it, it's the heat of the day, and I don't want to eat. I don't want to sit still. I want to get it all done. I want to go home. But it just seems to come up all day long. Do you know that God is appearing to you in the heat of your day? He's there. It seems like he's silent because your, your life is so loud. But God wants to meet with you in the heat of your day. And he wants to have a fellowship meal with you. Now, it might not be that you sit down and have a four-course meal with a fattened calf. But in many times, it's just take your lunch break and spend some time in the Word of God. And let Him feast you. Let Him feed you. Let Him be the rest that you need in the middle of it. And then start the second half of the day. So God meets with them. And notice here that Abraham takes the form of a slave. He washes their feet. He brings them water. Who washed feet in the New Testament? The only person I know of is John 13, other than the woman that was uh, healed of the demons that had broken the, the perfume over Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. The only other time I see somebody responding in worship to God is that woman, and nobody wanted her touching them because she was a prostitute. But Jesus had his feet washed, and yet Abraham responds in worship recognizing how much he's been forgiven in all his failures, and he's serving the Lord literally. He feeds them, and he, he even takes the fattened calf and kills it. And I love this because in the New Testament, Jesus tells a story about a prodigal son, and it's actually the father who is a picture of God the Father who is receiving the prodigal son who runs in the story of the prodigal son coming back. Prodigal son comes back, says, I'll just be a servant, and then at least I'll have something to eat. And the father, who didn't have to, runs to his son, arms open, and says, let's have a party. I'm so glad you're back. And yet Abraham here is just so excited to see these men that he creates a meal for them. So all that to say, Jesus is all over this section in Abraham. Abraham's becoming more and more like God. And as he's like God, he's thankful, he's, he's gracious, he's very generous, he's excited to serve these men, and as he serves them, what we find out is that in the fellowship, by the way, the, the most intimate way you can hang out with people is to eat together, and as they're eating together, God begins to reveal through these three men uh, the things that he's getting ready to do. So verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, she's here in the tent. So honestly, it's interesting. She's baked the bread. She's made all the food. She's not even involved in the meal. And then Abram's just standing at the table. So it's like they're at a restaurant. And then um, after that, he said, um, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. I'm assuming this is the gestation period of a baby but basically, he says, I'm going to return and you're going to have a son. Now, Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. You might say she was eavesdropping. Get it? Eve, Adam and Eve? Anybody? No? Why is it always Eve that's eavesdropping? I'm just saying, you know, uh, women be listening. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old. They were well advanced in age. 
just in case you didn't know what old means. They were also well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? In verse 13, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Isn't that interesting? Because it doesn't say she laughed out loud. It says she laughed within herself, kind of chuckling. She, she's laughing in unbelief. Like, this, there's no stinking way I'm going to have a kid. I'm old, and my Lord is old also. And um, the Lord asks, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? She was laughing, not so much at what he said, but at the impossibility from her perspective of that happening. In verse 14, the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And the Lord says, no, but you did. You did laugh. <laughs> He's rebuking her. Yeah, you, you did laugh. And then he leaves, by the way. He says that, and he departs. Verse 16, then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. He's moving on. This is no longer up to debate. But what's interesting, and I underline this in my Bible, I had never done that before in this particular passage, but verse 14, this is something I would encourage you to think about later as we're taking communion today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, in the face of their circumstances, God said, I'm going to give you a son by your wife, Sarah. Sarah laughs, much like, interestingly enough, just a chapter or two before, Abram laughed. Now, what we find out from the Hebrew is that when Abram laughed about it, he was chuckling like we laugh when somebody says, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money. You're kidding, really? <laughs> Seriously? God, you're so good. That's, that's the tense of what he's saying. But when Sarah laughs, remember, she's, she's still battling bitterness and contention and barrenness. So to tell her you're going to have a child is like saying, hey, you're going to be 18 feet tall. Right. <laughs> She's scoffing. She's even a little bit bitter in her scoffing. She's like, okay, <laughs> that's funny. You know, and, but, but what God says and challenges our faith when he says this to us, and I believe that God might be saying that to some of you this morning. Maybe there's some hurdles in your life that you think are absolutely impossible to cross. There's no way that that thing is possible. I know what God's word says, and I know what other people have told me, and I know that he's been revealing to me through, through other conversations that, that this is something I should pray for, but <laughs> I don't think so. But then the question comes, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is, we're talking about the creator of the universe, Genesis 1.1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He spoke them into existence. What's, that's impossible to me. But once I come to him and say, I believe you're the creator of the universe, at that point, anything's possible. Even Jesus said, you know, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And at that point, what the disciples had said is, Jesus said to his disciples, be careful the, the deceitfulness of riches. It is very 
hard for a man who is rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, you've said a tough thing to us. This this seems impossible. If the rich can't get into heaven, who can? And, And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I love this because as we're reading this, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, right? And at Christmas time, what happens is we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Well, we're not celebrating a, a birth. We're celebrating a virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. That's the prophecy from Isaiah. And then, and then in Luke, in chapter 1 and 2, this is revealed. This is happening now. Now, the Old Testament, by the way, is all the, the main theme can be summed up in this. Jesus is coming. The Savior's coming. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is here. And then everything after that through Revelation is Jesus is coming back. That's the Bible. If you want to know what the Bible's about, it's about Jesus. Jesus is coming. Jesus is here. Jesus is coming back. And then his kingdom. And so all that to say, here we have in the, the gospel account where Mary has revealed to her, you're going to conceive this child. It's not going to be from Joseph, your betrothed. It's going to be of the Holy Spirit. And then Mary says, very famously, before the child's born, before she realizes all this is going to take place, she says, let it be unto your servant according to what you have said. And then she says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. It's the same sentence. And so this is a statement of faith, by the way. With God, nothing is impossible. And actually, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So in verse 9, excuse me, verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And she laughed. Verse 14 says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. He's like a king decreeing something that is already going to be true. No, but Sarah shall have a son. I said it, therefore it will be. He says, I'll return to you. And, and he's rebuking her unbelief. Is anything too hard for me? God says, Sarah, you shall have a son. And he gets the final word, by the way. He doesn't give her time to argue with him any longer. And so all that to say, verse 16. Then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them off. This this verse is hilarious to me because my grandma to this day, she's 84 years old. If we're leaving her house, we've already said bye like six times. And it's like the Missouri goodbye. And then when we leave, I don't care what the temperature is, she's walking out with us to the car and she's going to say bye about six more times. She's, she's seeing us off. So Abraham, as a hospitable man, sees them to the door. He sees them to the edge of town. He wants to make sure they're blessed. And it says there, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? So these three men are to symbolize the Lord, and yet they're there manifest as the Lord, and yet they're speaking to one another, 
And, and this, is, this is how the Godhead works. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all God, but they're all one. But somehow we see in this take that they communicate with one another, and they agree with one another, and they decide together. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God's word is meant to be heard by us and he decides to reveal to Abraham about the coming judgment of this ungodly nation, Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities. And of course, we all know about them because of their name. Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire and brimstone rain down upon them. But what purpose does God have in revealing this to Abraham? Abraham doesn't live there, but who does? His nephew Lot, who's like a son to him. So God has promised to make Abraham a great nation, right? So in order to prepare him to be a leader of a great nation, he's preparing him by revealing the judgment that is to come on the ungodly, on the wicked. God reveals to us, his children, that he's going to judge ungodliness. God's love judges ungodliness because he's just, he's completely, perfectly just. If he doesn't judge wickedness, then he's not good. And so as we look at this, he's preparing Abraham to be able to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. He's warning them. He's preparing him to warn them of the consequences of disobeying God's way and walking other ways. Sodom and Gomorrah had already seen the fruit of godliness in Abraham's life. Abraham had delivered them from the wicked other nations that had also taken them captive. He's showing them that God is able to deliver the righteous from the judgment the world will receive. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 4, Peter touches on this very thing. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, speaking of the flood, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. He condemned them to destruction, making them an example. Why did God reveal through his word these judgments? He, they're an example. Many times people do ungodliness. They break the law and there are certain law enforcement officers that will arrest them and punish them as an example to others who would seek to do the same things. It's kind to punish ungodliness and wickedness and lawlessness because when you punish that, it shows everybody else, if you do the same, your end will be the same. It's a warning. And so he's making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Remember, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then he dwelled in Sodom. Then he moved his family there because of riches. 
And yet, when he lived among them, the Bible says that he was tormented in his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. So, You might be looking around the world right now and seeing all of the lawlessness increasing. And what God would say to us who are in Jesus is that I am able to deliver the righteous. Even though it seems like it's all going to go down, we're all going to be judged with the world, the reality is is that we won't be. (laughs) And that's why I believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture that God will take us up to be with himself and then he will unleash judgment. And why do I say that? Because in the next chapter, we're gonna read in chapter 19 that Lot was approached by two of these three men. They went into the city. They saw the wickedness of Sodom. They took Lot and his family out and then the judgment. And I believe that's a type of what's gonna happen in the end days. God will deliver the ungodly out of the world, and then he will judge the world. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 actually says that God's not appointed his children to wrath or tribulation, but he's appointed them to life eternally. And so in verse 20, um, 22, so the men have turned away from there and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So these men departed, but he still stood before the Lord. It's kind of confusing and maybe something to dig in on your own, but they went to Sodom and yet God was still with him. And Abraham came near and said, sorry, I think, I feel like I've skipped something and maybe I didn't. So the Lord said to Abraham in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So Abraham at this point has heard that the city's going to be judged. He's got a family member and his family that live there. So Abraham has heard about the coming judgment and he starts to plead with the Lord about the judgment because he's concerned that those who are there that he cares about will also be caught up in the judgment. And this is a godly response to the knowledge of God's judgment. Not to get all freaked out, not to run around in circles and and cry the sky is falling, but to pray. If you're concerned about people you know being swept up and judged with the world eternally, then you better start stinking praying for them because God's going to reach out to them. He already is, and he might just use you as an instrument to speak to them. Prayer is where we get prepared for that. And so Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then he starts to get more specific. He says, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city, would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he's calling upon the character of the Lord. And he's even questioning, are you like this? Do you, do you destroy the righteous with the wicked? These are questions we can ask, by the way. This is prayer. Talking to God about who he is and what he's getting. Really? You're, he's questioning him, but he's also asking about, about his character. And, and I think that if we spent more time wrestling with God about who he is and reading his word to have it revealed to us, we'd be a lot less freaked out about what's going on right now. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. If there's 50 righteous in the city, I'm not going to destroy the city for the sake of the righteous that are there. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. He's humbling himself, and yet he's questioning. Suppose there were five less than 50. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? Now he's an auctioneer. <laughs> what about, hey, what about 50, 50, five less than 50? I can't do it. I wish I could. That'd be fun. So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 around found there. So he said, I, I will not do it for the sake of 40. I don't know why he didn't just go straight to 10. But for whatever reason, like this is his conversation. He's, he's trying not to be too pushy, and yet he's, he's pushing, right? He, he's debating. He's, he's saying, hey, maybe I could only spend 10000 for this car, not twenty. You know, like, but, but I'm not going to start by going straight to 10. I'm going to start by going to, to 15. I'm, I'm going to haggle. This is a Middle Eastern thing. You've heard it used as slander about Jews that they always are haggling, but it's also true. Like it's, it's a reality about being Middle Eastern culture. If, if you go to a store shop in Jerusalem, and I've done this, and you don't start to haggle the price, they, they don't respect you. They're like, what, what are you doing? They, they, they like that. They overprice things so you'll argue with them. They love it. I, I don't get it either. You know, I wish Amazon was that way. That'd be awesome. Like, oh, I'm going to say I want to pay this for this. They're like, no, no, I've already got this. There's like a whole instant messaging conversation going on. Like we need more of that. Anyway, that's where my brain goes. He says, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. I wonder if the Lord's chuckling at this point. Like, okay, Abraham, let's move on. He said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. He said, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak, but once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. And this makes me think of a time where uh, Judah, he likes snacks. He has meals, but he never eats those. He's always eating a, a pre-meal snack. It's really the meal, but it's not the snack. And I can't remember what it was. Uh, he wanted an apple or apple slices. or, And he would start with, hey, can I have three of this? Knowing full and well, he was not getting three. But then he's like, well, maybe then just two. And then, of course, he would always get it. He was smart enough to start high and then come down. 
And you know, there was a part of me going, get to the point. That's me. My wife loves it. She's just like, oh, he's, he's just so cute. And I'm like, no, he's a turd. He's, he's working you. But all that to say, he is a turd, but he's mine. And there are times where I really do delight in how his mind works. And I wonder if we kind of forget that about the Lord and us. That he knew us in our mother's womb. He created us and we're unique. Not one of us responds to the same situation the same way. And he loves that. And he never gets tired of it. And I wonder if sometimes he doesn't just show us things so we'll ask him, what does that mean? Lucy's at a spot right now where I'll use, I talk to her like she's an adult because I don't want her to talk the rest of her life. And she'll, I'll use big words on purpose. And she'll say, Daddy, what does that mean? And at that point, I get to expose to her what that word means, and she starts using it. And in our relationship with God, God shows us things that are too big for us on purpose. So that we'll go, why? What does that mean? How are you going to do that? What about this? And, and if we're careful, we stop trying to redirect God and go, aren't you sure you should do it this way and instruct him? God doesn't need our instruction. But instead, if we'll, as a child, approach him and say, well, what about this aspect? Have you thought of this? And he'll usually look at us and go, that's too big for you, like a father would or a mother. And sometimes he'll look at us and go, well, this is why I'm revealing this to you. He's revealing this to Abraham so that he can teach this nation he's going to be the father of to keep the way of the Lord. Because judgment's real, but life, the way of life is a real thing too. And so all that to say, all of this began with fellowship. Abraham's relationship with God, his salvation, you might call it, began with God revealing himself to him. And this revealing led to relationship. And this relationship that started in conversation got more intimate and became about fellowship. You might say a fellowship meal, a time to eat and break bread together. And then fellowship led to further revelation and revelation led to further instruction and warning. And warning leads to intercession. And ultimately, it's going to lead to the salvation of others. This is what it means to mature in our fellowship with God through Jesus. It starts with him revealing himself. And it progresses to conversation. And it, it progresses to questions. And it progresses to fellowship and eating with him. And, and this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a meal with the Lord. Number one, because he told us to until he returns. But number two, to remember that it's not about all the stuff he wants us to do. He, he wants to spend intimate time with you. And in that intimate time, there will be things that are accomplished, if you want to call it that. But really, more than anything, he just wants to know you, and he wants to be known by you. And and then as a result of that, he wants you to enjoy him. And that's why we take bread, which is a symbol of his body that was broken for us, to make that possible. And that's why we drink wine, because that juice is a reminder of the blood that he shed so that we could do this, so we could do the one-on-one -on -one thing with him.
And so the way we do it is if you're in Jesus, and you would call yourself a Christian, and, and you've been washed in the blood of Jesus, and you've believed what he said about his son, that he's the only way to God the Father, then at that point, you're invited to the table. Come and take the elements, and we're going to sing a song as we can take the elements. Spend time talking to the Lord. What is the thing that you're struggling with this week that's impossible? I want you to talk to him about it. This thing you show me that you can do, God, I, I'm laughing. I'm scoffing. Rebuke the unbelief in me in some way. Help me to embrace that nothing's impossible for God. But right now, I feel like everything seems impossible in this situation. And let him speak to you that truth. Is anything too impossible for me? Spend time with him. And as you spend time with him, after that, we'll, we'll take the bread and we'll take the cup together. And then we'll close with a song. It's that simple. This is a meal with Jesus. This is a meal with your father. And the Holy Spirit wants to speak things into you that you need to hear. So that's all this is. So Father, um, thank you for the opportunity to look at Abraham and see his relationship with you. And thank you for the intimacy that came from a simple meal. And thank you for the devotion that Abraham had because of all you'd forgiven him of. Father, we pray um, that during this time, you would pour out your spirit that you would take the word that we've just read and I've tried to explain and that you'd meet it up with what we're going through in our lives currently. Father, there's a lot of things going on in our world. There's a lot of things going on in our homes and we need clarity. Uh, we know that you're the provider of clarity. We know that you're a provider of our daily bread. But we're asking during this time that we're setting apart to, to devote to you, Lord, that you'd speak things to us individually that we need to hear so that we could walk in the words of life, so that we could be warned about things, so that we could be instructed about things, so that we could be prepared for things, and all of that in the midst of our relationship with you. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you for this communion table you've provided for us. Lord, be glorified in our communion. In Jesus' name.